Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Who in the room has heard the phrase, the lion's share? Is that something you've heard of? Yeah? Uh, A few of you have. Do you know where it comes from? Uh, It comes from a fable that was written by a a guy called Aesop a long, long time ago. I'm going to show you how this works this morning. So, um, there were some animals, and one of them was a lion. (laughs) Which I'm going to be for for the purposes. But but I need some help. I need three more friends for the lion. So, uh, who's going to help me? Don't all rush at once. Peter, you, you can help me. Great. Um, you can be a wolf. Come, come, come up here and be the wolf. You're part of the hunting party with me. You coming, Julia? Great. <laughs> oh, well, you can be the snow leopard. Okay. Um, we, we are animals out there. I need one more. Who's going to join me as my last animal? Okay, come on, Josh. You get to be the nice, vicious unicorn. <laughs> Pig unicorn. And the four of us decide what we're going to do is go hunting together. And let's make a deal, shall we? Like, anything we catch, shall we divide up between us? Yeah. That would be fair, yeah. wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, Wolf, you can go hunting. And what are you going to catch for us? A sloth, actually. <laughs> but you bring it back and... Now is the time that we've got to divide it up. So obviously, as the king of the jungle, I get to be in charge of this. I get to uh, do the organising, let's say, just for admin's sake, of course. And how many of us are there? One, two, three, four. So I'm going to divide this up four ways. So I've got my carving knife out and chop, 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 chop. There are four sections. Now, who should get the first one? I I think because I've done the admin here, I've done the organising, I really ought to get the first bit. So I I, I get my bit and yum, 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 yum. I've eaten my share. And then who should get share number two? Well, I think it's only fair that share number two goes to to the strongest animal among us, which, no, no, don't be silly. The strongest is the lion, isn't it? Like, of all these animals. So uh, that's my bit. And then share number three goes to... The bravest animal amongst us. Who's bravest? Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm the bravest. I'm the lion, of course, so that one's mine. So there's only one share left. And do any of you fancy coming to grab it off me? No, you don't, because I've got power. I'm in control. Thanks, guys. You can take your seats and remove your costumes if you want. <laughs> that is the fable. It's a story that... At its heart is all about power. It's about something that probably most of us, many of us, all of us, I would say, have experienced time and time again in the different relationships in our lives. There'll be times that you're around other people, but it's not balanced. It's not on the level. You don't all have as much say as each other. Sometimes you might be in situations where you have way more control over what's going on than the people around you. You're like the lion. You get to decide. And so you might choose to be generous, be kind, to share, but you might choose to use this position you've got to take more for yourself and others miss out. 
Or you might have been on the other end of it. And there's someone who's got power. They've got control. They've got ability to make decisions that mean you miss out, that mean you lose out. And there's very little you can do about it. That's how power works. And it's uh, a big thing. It's a thing that we encounter throughout life. And here at Christchurch Manchester, we've been looking at this series you see on the screen, God Meant It For Good, which is the story of Joseph and his brothers. And as part of this big chunk of the Bible that looks at their story, there's a detour along the way that explores this idea of power, that explores how it works. And there are two stories back to back. So one of them we'll be talking about today, one of them we'll be talking about next week, that really explore this from two different perspectives. So today, we're we're kind of just putting Joseph on pause for a bit. We left him last time. He's been sold by his brothers as a slave into Egypt. We'll learn more about what he got up to in Egypt next time. And today, we pick up the story of one of his brothers, a guy called Judah. And Judah was the fourth in line. So he was the fourth eldest. And he was the one who had the idea of selling Joseph. So he saw the traders in the distance and was like, we can get a bit of profit out of this. Let's let them have Joseph. Don't really care about my brother. Don't really care about things going well for him. All I care about is me and my money. So like the lion there, he's only interested in what he can get. Doesn't matter how it affects somebody else. So that's Judah. Now, you might want to follow along because we're going to gradually work our way through the story. It's Genesis chapter 38 is where we're going to be. So if you've got a Bible, do have it open in front of you so you can follow along. Um, And then once we've worked our way through the story, I'm just going to reflect a bit on two of the characters. So Judah and another character called Tamar, who we will meet. Before we do it, though, I I need to give you a little bit of a warning about this one. So I don't know if you've ever done like a Bible reading um, schedule where you've got like different passages to read different days and you work your way through it. And most of the time it's fine. And every once in a while you read one and you're like, that was weird, wasn't it? Like, um, have I just read that? I actually read that in the Bible this is one of those ones, okay? So just as we go, be prepared for weird. That's where it's going to go. But um, Genesis 38, uh, let's follow along from the beginning. So it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. We're going to stop there. And I wonder if, just as we're reading so far, are any red flags coming up in your mind just from the first two verses? Is there anything that stands out here? And you just go, oh, okay, I'm prepared now for a story that might not be so great. Well, I can see four red flags already. Here's number one. Whose names does it mention in this story, in these verses? It mentions Judah. It mentions Judah's best friend, Hira. It mentions Judah's father-in-law, Shua. And whose name doesn't it mention? His wife. Now, that's quite stark, isn't it? Like, three people named, one person not named. What have the three people who've been named got in common? They're men, 
right? And you might think, well, okay, that's, that's how it was. That's ancient literature. That's how they did things back then. That's not the way Genesis works. When you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see people, men and women, mentioned together. You'll see Adam and Eve. You'll see Abraham and Sarah. You'll see Isaac and Rebekah. Joseph's wife, Asenath, is mentioned. But Judah's wife isn't named. And so when it breaks the pattern... It's meant to tell us something. It's foreshadowing. This is a story where the women in the story are not treated well, are dehumanised. And these first verses are giving us a clue that that's going to happen. Another red flag that I see uh, is he goes to Canaan. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you'll have noticed that time and again, Canaan is where bad things happen. It's where people go as they're led away from God. They had all sorts of religious practices there that were not good, that were opposed to the worship of the true God. So time and again, there's a warning. Don't go to Canaan. Don't get involved with what the Canaanites do. Don't marry into the Canaanite religion and into the Canaanite worship. Don't do that. It will lead you astray. Straight from the start here, that's exactly what Judah is doing. Another one that I see in verse 2, when it's talking about how he met his wife, that language of saw and took is exactly the same language we see in Genesis 3. So this is the story where you've got Eve in the Garden of Eden and there's the fruit on the tree that God had said, no, don't have that. She saw and she took. That's the language. And here it's echoing the same language. It's making us think. That place where all the problems started, oh, is this a repeat of that? Uh, Is the consequence of that, is the brokenness and fallenness and sin of the world going to be shown in this story? And then fourthly, just staying on that language of saw and tuck. Think about that. That's quite brutal language, isn't it? That doesn't sound like nice. It doesn't sound friendly. It doesn't sound mutual. It's not like, hey, he, he invited her for, for a drink and they got on really well and they got married. It doesn't say it. He saw and took. It's brutal language. Let's keep going with the story then and see what happened. So verse three, she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. I think that's because he couldn't think of a name. So she's like, uh, um, <laughs> She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So we've skipped quite a lot of years of the story here. Judah and his wife have had these three sons. They've grown up and the first one is now married to this bloke called Tamar. Uh, To this woman called Tamar, sorry. That would be a different story. But um, now he's married to Tamar, his wife. Now, this guy, Ur, has been up to no good. We do not know what he's done. We just know it was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So he's been up to no good and then he ends up dying. Imagine you are Tamar. Imagine you've been in this marriage. Now, remember, in that culture, in those days, she wouldn't have had much say. This wedding would have been arranged by Judah and by her dad. And she ends up married to a guy who's a bad one. He's a wrong one. He's doing stuff that is no good. So it would have been a difficult marriage for Tamar. 
and then her husband dies, so now she's widowed. What that would mean, she couldn't just go out and get a job. She would be dependent on other people for support. It's a time she would need the family to gather around to provide for uh, her to have somewhere to stay, to provide for her to have meals on the table. As she gets old, to provide for her in her old age. She'd be relying on the family gathering around. Now, they did have a system in those days, and the system was called leveret marriage. And it sounds really weird to us. But what, would, what was meant to happen was the next brother was meant to give her a child who could be in the dead brother's name, who could then grow up and take care of his mum when she was old. It seems weird. It seems strange to us. But it was about compassion. It was about mercy. It was a way of making sure she wouldn't be destitute and have nothing. So this would be boy number two's job. And boy number two, his name was Onan. So we're going to pick up the story of Onan. Verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Do you remember that bit a few minutes ago where I said this story's going to get weird? Now you can see why. This is a strange old story. Basically what happens is Onan doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to fulfill this obligation on him to have a son with Tamar in his brother's name. Now, I can kind of get that. I can understand, you know, if he didn't want to do it for whatever reason, fair enough. But couldn't he have just said, no, thank you? Couldn't he have just said, actually, I'm a bit uneasy about that. Let's not. But that's not what he said. What he chose to do was to still sleep with her, to still get his gratification but to not give her the son that she was entitled to. So he was using the position he had. He was using the power he had, like that lion in that fable at the start, who could do whatever he wanted and however it affected the others. That was just their tough luck. Well, so Onan was thinking, I can get what I want out of this. And if she's destitute when she's old, so be it. I don't care as long as I get what I want. She was sinned against in two different ways. Tamar was sinned against by Onan, who sexually exploited her. But she was also sinned against by Judah. Because after Onan had done this, after Onan was dead as well, what should have happened is the whole family should have had so much compassion on Tamar, so much care, so much, let's gather around. She's now been widowed twice. She's now lost two of the guys. She's got nothing. No one will provide for her. Let's as a family make sure everything is taken care of. Let's be emotional support. Let's be material support for her. But Judah didn't do that. Judah said, no, she's got to go away. She's inconvenient. She's a drain on resources. Maybe she's a bad omen. Maybe having her around is why my boys are dying. Get her out of here. I'm not going to provide for her. I'm not going to care for her. I've got no interest in what happens to her. Just get her out of my house. 
That's sin, isn't it? That's, uh, that's exploitation. This is a justice issue, and she's been denied the justice that she's entitled to. And then the second thing that Judah does is when the, the last son grows up, he promised, look, when, when Shelah's old enough, then, okay, you can have a son with him, but then Shelah grows up and Judah just forgets about her. Out of sight, out of mind, we don't want you back, Tamar. This is her life. And yet Judah, using his power, his position, his privilege, denies her what she's entitled and condemns her to a life of destitution. So let's see what happened next. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. But when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. So Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young go and you did not find her. When I preach, one of the things I try and do is a bit of research on the passage that I'm preaching about. I look at commentaries, which are, are books where people who've done a lot of study uh, write their thoughts on what's going on. I listen to some talks by other people. I see what uh, is being said. And, and so much of what I've seen about this passage are people trying to judge the morality or immorality of Tamar's actions here. That seems to be a focus that a lot of people have. I'm not remotely interested in doing that this morning. That is not what this is. Because when our starting point in thinking about any incident, any issue, is to critique the way the ones who've been wronged and exploited might choose to fight for justice, I think we're starting from the wrong place. I think we're reading the story in the wrong way when that's where we begin. Tamar was legally and morally entitled to this leveret son of a union with Judah's family, and she'd been denied that. So Tamar went into this incident with a heart longing for justice, a heart longing for what was hers, what she was entitled to. 
Now, Judah, on the other hand, he went into this looking for something else entirely. In fact, as I read this, Judah comes across as a bit shady, a bit dodgy. In fact, uh, you know that Arctic Monkeys song with the line, such a scummy man? That was like the soundtrack in my mind as I was reading and thinking about Judah's actions here. I've got some questions that I want Judah to answer. Number one, how did Tamar know where to be? How did she know, oh, if I go on this road and dress in this way, oh yeah, Judah will be along, won't he? He had a reputation. This was the place that he and his mate would go uh, to shear their sheep. This was a thing that they needed to do every year. It was about 50 miles away, which when uh, you're just on, on foot or on uh, animals traveling there, it's a long journey. It's like a holiday. It's like lads on tour, him and, uh, him and his mate going up to, to Timnah. And uh, th there's vibes of it, like what happens in Timnah stays in Timnah. Lads holiday. Uh, and she knows how Judah will be around. And if I'm on this road dressed in this way I'm gonna catch his eye because that's Judah also I have a big question about Judah's opening line you know he, he approached her and said come let me come into you I mean he has no chill what about starting with hello uh, hi my name's Judah what about striking up a conversation no interest in doing that I've got questions over the fact that he did not recognize that she was his daughter-in-law now at a distance, she's wearing a veil. Fair enough. Oh, yeah, I didn't realise it was you, but now I'm closer, I can see it's you. But no, it wasn't that. He got up close to her. He had a conversation with her. He slept with her. Still didn't realise who it was. I mean, what? Like, how do you not notice who it is? Was it that he was intoxicated? Was he, was he drunk? Was he high? Was he, did he just have no interest in her whatsoever? So he didn't pay any heed, any attention to who she was. I, I don't know. He, he comes across really, really shady, though. And the deal they made is uh, to sleep with her, he had to give her a young goat. Now, he didn't have a young goat with him. Fair enough. I don't carry young goats on a night out either. Um, so she says, well, OK, you'll need to send me one. So leave a deposit. Leave something with me of yours that I can hold on to until I get it. So uh, he leaves his signet, his cord and his staff. Think the ancient equivalent of his phone, his driver's license and his credit card with her until he pays her what he's promised. And then when he sends his mate with this young goat, they can't find her at all. He's like, right, this is getting awkward. This is getting embarrassing. Let her just keep the stuff. That's where it lands. So we pick up the story again, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, well, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, well, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Isn't that crazy? He hears that she might be pregnant and he absolutely flips out about it. It's like the worst thing that can happen. How dare she sleep with someone she's not married to? And the hypocrisy of it, he just doesn't see in the slightest. He's been there up in Timna doing what he's doing, doesn't think at all about his own actions, but as soon as he hears she might have done something, he's down on her like a ton of bricks. Let her 
be burned. Jesus said that the one who has a speck in their own eye is judged by the one who has a log in their eye. Look at your own stuff first, Judah. Don't just come down on her when you've been doing the same and worse. And his punchline is that she is more righteous than I. And that's how the story lands. And that's why I'm confident in the way I've read the story, the way I've explained the story, the way I've focused on Judah's actions, not Tamar's, is because that's the punchline of the story. That's the way the Bible tells it. She's in the right here, he's in the wrong. And even Judah realises it by the end. It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's a, it's a strange one when you come across it and you think about it. And what's God saying through it? I want us just to briefly reflect on these two characters, on Judah and on Tamar. So Judah, what we see is a man here who leads his house based on power and on exploitation. I think that's the striking thing in this passage. The difference in power between Judah and his sons on the one hand and Tamar on the other hand. Think about it. In a society like that, Judah is someone who was male, who was wealthy, who was socially connected. He could do what he wants. He had so many opportunities and options open to him. Tamar, on the other hand, what happened to her really was at the sway of Judah and other powerful people, and she had so little agency here. Like the lion in the fable, Judah can act as he wants and get away with it, and there's little that Tamar can do. And he chooses to use his power in an exploitative way, as does his son. Situations like this happen all the time in life. Callahan Wayne says, when you've got more power than another person, it means you've got more choices available to you than they have available to them. And you have some control over what their options are. And so I started thinking about my life and I started thinking about the different relationships that I have. I was like, oh, this is so true. There are so many relationships in my life where I have less power than the other person. So their choices affect what I can do. And there are so many relationships in my life where I have more power than the other person. I'm the one with the options. What I decide affects them and they don't have as much choice. Now, there are all sorts of dynamics at play, like why that is the case. Some of them are to do with positions that I hold. So, for example, I am a parent, so therefore I have power in that relationship with my children. That's just built into the dynamic of that relationship. In my work role, I have a level of seniority, so there's power that comes with that. Here at church, I'm on the leadership team. There's power that comes with that. Some of the other dynamics might not be to do with position, but might be to do with how society regards things. The fact that I'm male, that I'm white, that I'm married. Now, these things shouldn't be so, but in society, these things are seen as given a, a degree of power. We shouldn't be blind to the imbalance that these things create. And you know, it's so much easier to notice this stuff when you're on the receiving end, when you're on the low power end of it. I bet all this stuff was dead obvious to Tamar and Judah missed it completely. Because we do that when we're the one with the choices. It's like, hey, well, what's the problem? We don't often see it as clearly as we could. We need to have an awareness that this really does affect situations. And then in those times where we have power in a relationship, where we have more power than somebody else, 
What do we do? How do we use that? Well, there are two options. We can either go down the Judah route, uh, and the Judah route is where he leans into that power to get what we want. We use the options we've got. We use the opportunities before us to get what we want, no matter what happens to the other person. We treat people like pawns in our own agenda. For Judah, selling his brother as a slave so he can get what he wants. For Judah, sending Tamar away, denying her justice. For Onan, sexually exploiting her. All of this, using power to exploit. But there's another way. It doesn't have to be used that way. And the other route is called the Jesus route. Because think about it. Jesus had all the power in the world. He is God the Son. For all eternity, he's been at the right hand of the Father. And yet, he came not to be served, but to serve. And he emptied himself. And he took the place of a servant. He laid his power down. And he used it to lift others up. Isn't that inspiring? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that such a contrast to what we see Judah do? And when Judah had this woman brought to him and said, let her be burned. Well, there's a story where Jesus had a woman brought to him who'd been caught committing adultery. I don't know what happened to the man because there'd have been two involved. But the woman was brought to him and people said, hey, Jesus, what should we do with her? And he said, neither do I condemn you. It's so, so different. Let's think about Tamar as well. Tamar was not in control of her circumstances. This is the flip side of that power dynamic. For much of the story, what happens to her is utterly outside of her control. She was married to a wicked man. That would have been arranged by her dad and Judah. She was sexually exploited by Ona, and then she was denied justice by Judah. The Old Testament frequently mentions five groups of people who particular compassion should be given to. Widows, orphans, the poor, the sick, and foreigners. Tamar ticked three of those boxes. The call on God's people is to respond to people like Tamar with compassion and mercy. Not exploitation, not harsh judgment. Tamar is brave and she's creative. Despite her her victim status here, Tamar's not passive. She finds a way to fight for the justice that she's been denied. Her actions put her in harm's way and they show her bravery and her creative approach to solving the problem before her. Now, our context is not the same as her context. and I'm not suggesting we imitate her precise actions here. But her heart and her willingness to fight for justice, I think, are things we can all imitate. And the third thing I just want to highlight on Tamar is that she's honoured in Scripture, that the Bible speaks of her with honour. Both in this passage where Judah says she is more righteous than I, but also in the New Testament. You know, when people tell this story in a way that shames Tamar, they miss the point of it. They miss the verdict from Judah's own mouth. She is righteous here. But also the New Testament, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, where it tells the genealogy of Jesus, where it goes through the generations. There are five women mentioned in that story, which was unusual in a family tree in those days. I wonder if you can just bring up the the slide with them. You've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. You've got the wife of Uriah, that was Bathsheba. And you've got Mary, who are mentioned. And now you see, these are women who've got a lot in common. Many of them were foreign women. Many of them were poor. Many of them experienced some degree of brokenness around sex or childbearing. And yet there they are, honoured, picked up in the story of Jesus. Someone like Tamar 
may have seemed incidental to Judas' story, but she's not incidental to Jesus' story. She's right there, front and centre at the beginning. Because Jesus came for people like her. Jesus came for people like Tamar. Jesus came for people like you. Jesus came for people like me. And you know what? Jesus even came for people like Judah as well. And Judah, this is a bit of a spoiler for where we're going in a few weeks, but Judah's got a crazy cool redemption arc in the story as well. God does some work in his heart. And where he is today in this story is not the same as where he ends up. God can work in all of it. The scriptures are given to us to point us to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. And that's true of this story we've read as much as any other. So as we land this, let's turn our eyes to him. Let's have our focus on him, the one who sees Tamar, the one who sees you, the one who uses power, not like Judah to exploit and abuse, but who uses it to serve, to lift up and to honour. I'd love to pray into a few things just as we, um, uh, as we land. Jake, I wonder if you'll um, just um, play on the guitar as well. But I, I just had a sense of three groups of people I want to pray for. So if you particularly uh, resonate with one of these things, then uh, let this just be a moment that uh, this prayer's for you, that you let God do what he wants to do in your heart this morning. So firstly, I, I think there's some of us who are hearing this and this idea of power being mentioned, maybe just a penny's dropped in your head. And you're like, oh, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before. I hadn't thought about the relationships I had. I didn't realise it worked that way. And a penny's dropped. And, and ripple effects are going through. You might have, oh yeah, and in this relationship, I, and over here, and maybe I need to do this. I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you as you work this through and understand how you can live it out. 